chapter 3, verse 1, is the fourth vision that is in Zechariah. Next, I saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh with the adversary, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to the adversary, May Yahweh rebuke you, adversary. May Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Isn't this man like a burning stick stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, and he stood there before the angel. And the angel spoke up to those standing all around, Remove his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, I have freely forgiven your iniquity and will distress you in fine clothing. He has this vision of Joshua. Now remember, Joshua was the high priest next to Zerubbabel, who was the governor, who led the first return of Jews back to the promised land. And he has this vision of Joshua dressed in filthy garments. And the adversary is there. We kind of talked about this in another class, but your Bible says Satan is there. And that is not a good translation. And we'll talk about the reasons why. In the Hebrew, it literally says the adversary or an adversary. It says adversary. There are only two times in the First Testament that you ever see Satan appear. The first one is in Job chapter 1 and 2, where Satan is coming to present a, uh, a case before God. And the other one is right here in Zechariah chapter 3. However, this is not Satan. It has been wrongly translated as Satan. All throughout the First Testament, this comes from a Hebrew word, Satan. So it's the same Hebrew or same English letters. It's just pronounced Satan. The first reason this is not Satan is because it's always translated as Satan all throughout the First Testament. And it just simply means accuser. Grammatically speaking, this can't be Satan. And the reason is, is that it's preceded by a definite article. Now, in grammar, for those who don't remember much about English, in grammar you have a definite article, which is the, like the specific book, and you have an indefinite article, which is a, like a book, any book. And Satan is always preceded by the definite article, the. You cannot have a proper name with a definite article. Nobody is ever the David, the Bob, the Bill. That is improper grammar. And it's totally improper in English. It's improper in Greek. It's improper in Hebrew. They never have an article that precedes a proper noun or a personal pronoun. This can't be Satan grammatically speaking because the minute it's the Satan, it's a description of adversary or accuser rather than a proper name. And that violates, there's no exception to that in Greek, Hebrew, and English and many other languages, but we're specifically talking about these. So grammatically speaking, this cannot be Satan. Second, every single time you see the adversary translated, it's always the adversary. You see this in multiple places. And I've given a lot of places in the book and in your notes here. But there's a couple that I'm going to highlight specifically. Well, the one is Numbers 22.22. And this one shows that this cannot be some supernatural, diabolical Satan that we know of attacking. 
Because in Numbers chapter 22, verse 22, Balaam is that false prophet who's been paid by Balak, the Moabite king, to curse Israel as they're about ready to enter the promised land. And God sends the angel to stand in the way of Balaam riding his donkey. And the donkey begins to talk to Balaam to stop him. And the angel of Yahweh is called the angel of Yahweh. And then in a few verses later, it's called the Satan. The angel is literally called the Satan. Because for Balaam, it is an adversary. It's being an adversary to Balaam. And so if Satan is, if the Satan is Satan, the diabolical creature, then that means the angel of Yahweh is also Satan. And that's not possible. That's not possible at all, especially when the context makes it clear that this is the angel of Yahweh. First Samuel 29 is another example where J- David looks to his nephew, who is, is one of his generals, Abinadab, and he looks to his nephew who's been disobeying him, and he's a violent man, and he says, get away from me, Satan, or he who have become a Satan to me, an adversary to me. We're told later in Kings, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, that the Satans were against um, Solomon, referring to the armies around there. And then there's another one in Chronicles where God himself is called the Satan. So in Chronicles chapter, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says the Satan incited David to take a census. But the parallel passage in 2 Samuel says God incited David to take a census. Those stories are exactly the same, like the parallels between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the story is exactly the same. And the only thing that is different is that in Samuel it's called God and in, or Yahweh. And in, it literally says Yahweh incited David. And in Chronicles, it's the Satan incited David. Now, at that moment, God is an adversary to David. He is opposing David and what he's doing. And so this makes it clear the way that it's constantly translated all the time, that it's not Satan. The other reason is he's never described as a diabolical creature. The only two times it's ever translated Satan in your Bibles is in first, or Job chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 3. And he never acts as a diabolical creature. The Satan that we know in the Second Testament, the Satan that Jesus describes, the Satan that Paul describes, the Satan that we see at work in the Second Testament is a diabolical creature that disobeys God all the time and seeks to sift and destroy you. We don't see that here. And Job, he is simply asking God, I don't exactly believe that Job is a righteous man. I think Job might be serving you only because he gets rewards from you. Now, that's a legitimate question. We've had that question of people that, that we go to church with, of why are you truly serving God? Are you in it just for the rewards or the fear of punishment? And the minute God says, okay, let's see what happens, it's God's idea to actually take everything away from Job. It's God's idea to inflict Job. The Satan doesn't do, doesn't, he doesn't do any of it without God's permission. And when God says, you can do all this, but you can't strike him, the Satan obeys. And then he says, you can strike him, but you can't kill him. The Satan obeys. Satan would never obey God. He would be going against him. And then when God says it's all done and over with, the Satan leaves and he obeys. Even in Zechariah here, we see God rebuking the Satan and then he walks away. 
He's not seeking, he doesn't go beyond the parameters. And in, in the Second Testament, we don't see Satan ever obeying God. And, and, and even when he's, he's unleashed completely on Jesus, it's only by Jesus' power to send him away. So this is the other reason. The other reason that I think, I think grammatically, the most strongest argument for why this isn't Satan, grammatically, is the whole definite article. The other reason is theologically, Satan can't enter God's presence. A sinful, rebellious being cannot enter God's presence without dying. This is the whole point of Christ dying on the cross for us. If sinful, diabolical, rebellious beings can enter God's presence, then we could all be in heaven with him without Christ. We are removed from God's presence from the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve has sinned. And sin automatically brings death. Every single time we see a figure like Isaiah coming in the presence of God, he's like, oh my gosh, I'm, all go I'm going to die. I've seen God, I'm going to die. There's only three ways that you can enter the presence of God. That's if you're absolutely sinless, like Adam and Eve were before the fall, or you're surrounded by a myriad of angels, thousands upon thousands of angels, because they act as a buffer. And I mean so many angels that you can't even get anywhere close to God. They buffer you from God's glory from eradicating you. And this is specifically seen in the fact that Abraham Yahweh appears to Abraham, and he has two angels next to him. And most commentators believe that those angels represented a myriad of angels. And we really see this in Moses. Even Moses, who's brought up on Mount Sinai, and is face-to-face -face with God, metaphorically speaking, he's face-to-face -face with God. When you're reading Exodus, it feels like it's just Moses and God up there. But when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 33, it says that Moses was surrounded by a myriad of angels as he received the law because he couldn't come in God's presence. And Galatians chapter 3, we're told that the law was given through a myriad of angels, that the law came from God to the angels to Moses, that God didn't actually directly speak to Moses because Moses couldn't handle it. And then in Acts Word 7, Stephen tells us that a myriad of angels were there between God and Moses. So even Moses, who got closer to God than anybody else, was separated. And so the other reason is that you have the blood of Jesus Christ. The third reason is you have the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is so important for you to understand. And we all, we know this. We know that we cannot come in the presence of God without Christ. We know that there is no salvation entering into heaven without Christ. None are righteous. None can enter the kingdom of God. All have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. And then when Christ dies for us and his blood covers us, uh, Hebrews tells us now we can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God, knowing we'll receive mercy and compassion. And we're told that the Holy Spirit can now for the first time ever enter us now that the blood of Christ has atoned for us. If it takes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross just to get us as sinful beings to be able to enter the presence of God and to get the Holy Spirit to indwell us, then there's no way that a diabolical, rebellious being can enter the presence of God without the atonement of Jesus Christ. And yet in Job and Zechariah, we see the adversary entering in both occasions. And most likely it's not even the same adversary. Just like the angel of Yahweh is not the adversary that's in Zechariah. And God is not the adversary that's the angel of Yahweh. And it's most likely it's just an adversary, someone who's questioning God. 
Now you're like, oh, wait a minute. Why would an angel question God? Now, da, 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 da. One, I don't know. Okay, there's so much about the angelical spiritual realm that we don't know. But two, we question God. Habakkuk questions God. And, and Habakkuk questions God and is inspired by God to write this and put it in Scripture. Remember, there's nothing wrong with questioning God as long as you're questioning it with respect and obedience and trust. It does seem in this case that he goes a little too far and he gets rebuked, but that doesn't being, being rebuked doesn't mean that you're a sinner or that you've done evil. It just means he's being rebuked, that his thinking is wrong. Remember, even at the end of the book of Job, God rebukes Job left and right and up and down. He is not happy with him. But he still calls Job a righteous man. Because Job never rebelled against God. He never disobeyed God. He never went against God. He just questioned God in ways that he should have probably questioned God. Or if he really had thought about it and maybe wasn't suffering with a bunch of boils and his family dying and could think a little bit more clearly, his theology would have been a little bit tighter. And so God rebukes him for his wrong thinking about God. But then he says, he turns to the friends and says, Job is righteous. Being rebuked is not necessarily the same thing as being sinful and being rebuked. It could just be bad theology or bad thinking. And and nowhere in the Bible have I ever seen anywhere that thinking wrongly or not having perfect understanding is a sin. There are wrong thinkings that you can have that are sinful, but that doesn't mean every time you think wrongly, it's automatically a sin. We think wrongly about a lot of things just because we're ignorant. And that's not a sin, that's just ignorance. But you can still be rebuked. This is not Satan. And Satan never appears in the First Testament in any kind of way. Now, once again, like I mentioned last time we discussed this, is Satan real? Yes, there is a real Satan. This is a lot of times people get real confused and they automatically assume I'm denying the existence of Satan. And they're like, well, Jesus, yes, Satan is real. Satan is a diabolical creature who's seeking to shift, sift and destroy you. That is a very real concept. But he's not revealed. I'm not saying he doesn't exist until the First Testament. He's just not revealed to us that he does exist and he's actively involved until the Second Testament. But that shouldn't bother you in any kind of a way because Jesus Christ, as the second member of the Trinity, has always existed, but he is not revealed until the Second Testament, which Hebrews makes it very clear that long ago he spoke through, God spoke through the prophets and visions and dreams, but today he speaks through his Son. This is a new revelation. This is a new way of speaking to us. So, yes, Satan is real. It's just this isn't him. This isn't him. There really isn't any scholar who believes that this is Satan. And frankly, to be honest, there are a lot of your Bibles still have this because it takes Bibles a long time to update with the newest things that people are understanding. And I've heard editors even say the reason that they've kept things that they know are wrong is because they know people will not like it if they change it. And when they print it, there'll be so many people are so mad. Wait a minute, they just change us. And they won't buy Bibles, and they won't make money. And that's a big driving factor. And to a certain degree, that's understandable. If you're going to spend thousands of dollars, well, hundreds of thousands of dollars, to pay people to translate things and update things and then print it and all that kind of stuff, and nobody buys it, that no company is going to be able to survive that. And then you're going to have no more Bibles, so to speak. So 
I kind of get it on an economic level, but at the same time, shame on you. So, um, but there's that idea that, and, and if you think that's not true, then did the people's reaction when they changed brother to people, like instead of, they changed it to brothers and sisters instead of just brother throughout the Bible, and people went insane mad about that, even though in the original Hebrew and Greek, that is a, what's called an honorary brother, where it does involve both sexes. Like when we say, um, all you guys in here, that's what's called an honorary um, um, male mask, or masculine, where we know guys includes male and female. And when we say like um, the humankind, we know that it refers to womankind as well. And that is clearly the Greek and Hebrew, and they were just updating it because nobody knows what an honorary masculine means anymore. They think it literally means brothers, and that was proven by the fact that they made a brother and sisters. Everybody got mad. That proved that they didn't understand what brothers meant. That, and then they didn't sell any of those Bibles. And so that shows you, you, you change something like this, and that's really going to affect things. So that's the main reason why Satan keeps showing up in these two passages. So... And that's, in some ways, that has more to do with people than it does with the translators. Let's look at what's happening now. So Zechariah, we do not know what the adversary is saying, but we can make an assumption of what he's saying and probably be fairly accurate. So here he is dressed in these filthy rags. He's come back out of exile. We know that they all went to exile because of their sin and disobedience. So there's sin attached to him. Filthy rags, filthy garments is always symbolic of sin and that kind of stuff. So the idea is Joshua is standing there in his sin. Then Yahweh turns to the Satan and rebukes him for something that we don't know what he said. And then he says, I have appointed him to be high priest. And he reclothes him in white garments. Which leads us to think that the Satan is saying, I don't think Joshua has the right to be the high priest because he's a sinner. That's a perfectly valid statement. In fact, the law is full of passages of priests being disqualified from serving as priests because of their sin. So there's nothing horribly evil by what he said. So what is wrong about what he said that God is rebuking him? Two things. First, the exile has clearly done away with the judgment. God has made it very clear in the prophets that the exile has been fulfilled, the judgment of God has been satisfied, and no one is guilty of sins pre-exile anymore because they have paid for their sins through the exile. Now, I don't mean all sins, but the sins that took them into exile. That has been paid for. Second, God is a forgiving God. He is a God of redemption. And the adversary is ignoring that. The adversary is ignoring that. There's nothing that says the adversary wants Joshua to die. There's nothing that says that he wants Joshua to have a miserable, horrible existence for the rest of his life. Because we're never told what he wants or what he's saying. All we know is we can assume that he doesn't think Joshua is qualified to be priest, which is a legitimate argument. But God is rebuking him because the redemption and the forgiveness of God is also a legitimate argument. God clothes them and cleanses them. And so what this vision is showing is that God has forgiven the people and he is going to allow Joshua to serve as a priest. Verse 5, Then I spoke up, let a clean turban be put on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with, the, with, clothed them 
while the angel of Yahweh stood nearby. Then the angel of Yahweh exhorted Joshua, Solomon, and Yahweh who rules over all says, If you live and work according to my requirements, you will be able to preside over my temple and attend to my courtyards, and I will allow you to come and go among these others who are standing by you. Listen now, Joshua, the high priest, both you and your colleagues who are now standing, sitting before you, all of you are a symbol that I'm about to introduce my servant, the branch. So now we're given privy to the fact that there's other priests that are also in this vision. They're standing with Joshua. So he represents the entire priesthood. And notice that God says, if you obey me, then I will give you the right to serve as priests in my temple and my courtyard. Which kind of lends a little bit of credibility to the adversaries or questioning. Because if Joshua is not obedient, he doesn't have the right to be priests. So even though God says, I rebuke you, adversary, I'm going to make Joshua a priest because I've cleansed him. But he then turns around and kind of agrees with the adversary and says, but if you disobey me, you'll lose the right to be a priest. So that's still a valid argument. What the adversary wasn't seeing was the big picture, even though what he was saying was partly right. And we know that. We've read the Bible long enough to know that disobedience does disqualify you from things and take away blessings. But you also can't see God as always a punishing, vindictive God. You have to also see him as the forgiving, redeeming, redeeming God as well. And that's what the adversary was not looking at. Then he says that you, all of you, are a symbol of the branch. Now the branch is this prophecy of the coming high priest. The high priest slash king. Now right now the branch has only been used of the king, the Davidic king that will come one day. And we see this specifically in Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 is the first time we see the coming messianic king referred to as the branch. It's kind of hinted at that we're told that a shoot will rise up out of the stump of Israel. A shoot of David will rise up. And so the idea is that this shoot will eventually get bigger and bigger and bigger and become the branch. This is also fitting because later in John chapter 14, Jesus will say, I am the vine and you are the branches, meaning at that point he's turned into a full-blown vine and he is a full-blown branch and we are the little mini branches that hang off of him. And so this is the idea that once he grows, full-grown into the Messiah, then he will begin to produce shoots out of himself, which are the people of God. They are the believers. As the stone, verse 9, As for the stone I have set before Joshua, on the one stone there are seven eyes. I am about to engrave an inscription on it, says Yahweh, who rules over all, to the effect that I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, says Yahweh, who rules over all, everyone will invite his friend to fellowship under his vine and under his fig tree. So here's what God is saying. And there's a stone set before Joshua. And the stone has many eyes. Now remember, eyes represent the all-knowingness of God. The implications of the stone and the branch are the same thing. And so this stone could be a capstone, it could be a cornerstone, it can be a foundation stone. Most likely it's a foundation stone because it's set before Joshua. Because this stone is in place, then all the vines and all the fig trees of Israel that have been cut down will regrow one day and provide fruit and blessing in the land again. Now this is also fitting because he's called the stone here 
And when you get to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told that Jesus is the living cornerstone laid down on the ground. And we are the living stones being built into him as the temple of God. But then it says this living stone has become a stumbling block to the Jews. That they can't accept nor see Jesus for what he really is, so they trip over him into judgment. And this is the idea. So what God is saying is, one day I will bring the branch, and I will lay him as a foundation stone for what I'm going to build one day, the new Jerusalem. And then Peter tells us that the Jews could not see Jesus as that stone, and they stumble over him, and therefore into judgment. But those who put their faith in the stone become living stones built into him and a part of the house. And so this becomes the foundational imagery for what's coming later in the Second Testament. So this is the fourth vision, foreshadowing the future branch slash stone that will come one day, and that Joshua is the example of that. The branch has always been the kingship. But now he says that you, Joshua, the priest are a foreshadow of the branch, which means at this point he's now connecting the branch to priesthood as well. So king and priest simultaneously. Now remember under the law, it's forbidden for one man or one woman to be both king and high priest simultaneously. This is why the author of Hebrews is going to say that the law has to be done away with in order for Jesus to be king and high priest. Because if he's going to be a priest, it has to be under a new law, and thus the new covenant. And Jeremiah 31, 31 predicted the day that the old law will, go be, will be done away with. This is looking forward to that. Now, if you're like, I don't know, that connection between king and high priest is a little loose, just wait, because the next couple of visions later is really going to seal the deal on this. 